All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, I would like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 6, and we're going to look at five verses this morning, which uh, gives me a little more hope than normal uh, that we can get this, get this done. So Galatians 6, 1 to 5. So Galatians 6, 1 to 4, let me read this, te- or 1 to 5, let me read this text to you first, and then uh, we'll work our way through it. Galatians 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one of us should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to anybody. For each one should carry his own load. You know, preaching on relationships is an interesting task. Uh, Life together isn't always pretty, is it? Life and relationships can be uh, incredibly messy. Uh, If you're married, uh, you know what that's like. If someone comes to one of us on the pastoral team and says, I want to get married, all three of us say, yeah, well, we require something. We require premarital counseling because we think that you're going to have issues in your marriage. Not because we suspect that you will, but we... Basically, we know you will because relationships tend to work that way, right? There's a, a selfishness, there's a brokenness, there's history, there's struggles that each one of us brings into relationship. And so as a pastoral team, we live with the assumption that life is messy. We should not be surprised by struggles that occur within the context of our church family or our personal family. We require it because it's needed. Any parent with one or more children knows that life can be messy. Any manager at work knows life can be messy. Any uh, teacher with a class at school, a coach, neighbors, we know life can be messy. One of the sadder expressions of that is when you're listening to reports about a hurricane coming into the Carolinas, and one of the biggest concerns before anything ever happens is that human nature will be exposed in something called looting, right? Why? Life's messy, And when people have an opportunity to gain advantage over someone else, they tend to take it. We do it in more subtle ways. Probably we aren't looters per se. But we may do it in other ways ourselves. Our sinful tendencies tend to have a negative impact on us. And as we said last week, this is who we are. This is us. It's a natural tendency. It's something that we all fight and wrestle with. This is the text that moves head on into that topic of the messiness of relationships. It's a text that moves from understanding that our salvation and progress are owing to God's work, meaning if you're in Christ, you're in Christ not because of personal achievement or accomplishment. You're in Christ because God's grace has overwhelmed you. And if in your Christian experience you have begun to experience some progress, that is owing to surrender to the work of the Spirit. Praise God. So hopefully if you're a believer, and I I would say this for every believer, if you're a believer, you should be able to look at your life and notice some substantive level of change, some outworking of the fruit of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit in your life. It's what he comes to do as we yield to him. The truth is at times that we're not yielding, and so we we struggle in this process of growth. 
The other thing I want you to see as you begin this text is that Galatians 6.1 starts with a familial term. It addresses family life. It's to brothers, to sisters in Christ, to people that are in relationship with one another. So it's to the believing community that Paul addresses this uh, portion of the letter very directly and specifically. And it's a term that's meant to fan affections. It's meant to stir up some sense of tenderness, some sense of responsibility or obligation that I have in Christ, that I don't have with the world. It's different. We'll get to that next week. My relationship to those that do not yet know Christ, and then this relationship that I share with people that God identifies as family. And it should stir up in your mind that there's some sense of obligation that arises out of that kind of relationship. The the key to the previous text is that surrender to the Spirit is how we progressively resist sinful self-interest and move more strongly into the context of community and life together. So Paul has a hope that as we progress in Christ and as we yield to the work of the Spirit, that we're changing and we're getting along better, we're more unified and we're stronger together. In this text, he moves back into this reality, if you will, because Paul is, if he's anything, he's a realist about the the nature of life. In verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5, he talked about biting and devouring. It's a warning that if relationships aren't dealt with by the Spirit and in the Spirit, then messiness can arise that brings devastation and destruction. Happens in all areas of life. That's why often in the context of family life, where we had such hopes and dreams that there's a brokenness that we wrestle with, right? And we, we, we long for hope because sometimes it seems evasive, hard to get hold of, hard to own, hard to know in your personal life experience. This text is written to show us how to walk by the Spirit in two specific ways that help us to understand community and life together. Okay, so what precedes it is an assumption that I'm yielding to and walking in the Spirit, and the result of that will manifest itself in two specific areas that are addressed in this text. One is helping someone who is overtaken in a fault, and the other one is helping someone who is experiencing an overwhelming set of circumstances. The text calls it a burden, something too heavy for an individual to carry by themselves. So in life, how do we move beyond brokenness? How do we live well, and how do we do life together more and more effectively? First illustration, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, so there's obviously a, a specific set of circumstances that Paul's addressing. There's something unique that's happening. In the context of church life. And as you, if you study this in original language, you understand that Paul has an assumption that this kind of circumstance will arise in the context of church life. It's an expected met condition. That this type of thing will happen. Here's how you need to learn to respond to it. Because we are broken people. We are hurt and we are hurting people. We wound and injury, injure each other. And we need to know a path back from that brokenness lest we bite and devour. That's Paul's concern all along. How do we live better? And here's the idea of someone being caught in a sin. That's the way the NIV says it. If someone is caught in a sin, the idea is to deviate from the path of righteousness, to go outside the boundaries of what God has established as appropriate and right and moral behavior. It's one for whom the deeds of the flesh, sinful self-interest, have begun to rule. 
Okay, so there's an, an area in the individual's life that is beginning to manifest itself in the context of church community. And we individually are called to take responsibility for each other in that setting. So I notice that there is a struggle emerging in someone's life. A pattern of lust, someone drawn to an inappropriate relationship, a pattern of dishonesty, a pattern of anxiety, a pattern of anger. Pick, pick, pick an area. Okay, think about a specific area. Pattern of dishonesty. A pattern of work taking over life. A pattern of greed. Fear of not having enough is captivating someone. Parental expectations driving harsh parenting. Right? And you're around and you just see it and you're like, oh, wow. And then it happens again and you start to say, and here, here I guarantee you, if you're walking in the spirit, there's something inside of you that is going to say, oh, I, I think I need to say something. But there's also something in you called the fear of man that causes you to pull back from that. And this text doesn't let you off the hook. This text is about a person in need, and it's about the people who are responsible to move into that circumstance in a way that is meant to be helpful, not hurtful. Now, let me say this. Not everyone who sins is described by being caught in a pattern of sin, okay? It's not talking about someone who intermittently struggles like we all do. It's talking about something is getting a little rooted and is becoming dangerous and hazardous to relationships and testimony in the body of Christ. That's the text here. A decided pattern of struggle is emerging, caught in it, detected in it, presumably by someone who knows him and loves him or her. That's the assumption of the text. Who should do something? I think the average person in the church believes the pastors should do something. Can I tell you something interesting? Pastors are not mentioned in this text. And I gained a sense of irrelevance. Who's responsible to act? I want you to think context, what we talked about last week. Those who were walking by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, those who are listening to the Spirit, who are sensing promptings and moving along with what God is doing in their life. Here's the way Paul describes them. If someone is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, the assumption is that the Spirit of God is indwelling, guiding, and transforming the life. He is suiting you to do ministry. So that it's life together. It's not life under a leader. It's life together. It's Christians walking through the struggles of life, not having to have leadership involved because we're doing our part. And leadership is there for more significant circumstances. But the normative experience of church life for those who are spiritual, walking by the Spirit in context, is that when a struggle emerges, they are prompted by the Spirit to move into that circumstance to do good for the glory of God. I love that. It gives me hope as a pastor. Because sometimes things can feel overwhelming. James helps a lot with counseling in our church. And sometimes it's, it's a burden for him. Pray. Pray. And also start to take responsibility for people in your sphere of influence that need you. That's what this text assumes. That that need is ever present. Those that are spiritual. We speak of, and I, I wanted to say this last week. We talk about sensing, hearing, being impressed, hearing God say something, right? There's all different ways that people talk about this work of the Spirit. I think the important thing is this. 
Not that we all speak, speak in the same way about the work of the Spirit, but that we all understand that the Spirit of God is at work in every believer who is surrendered to His speaking and directing. And the crucial thing is that we are being sensitive, that we are becoming more spiritual so that we are more helpful to people around us that have needs. That's the goal. That's the goal that Paul envisions. Every spirit-led believer, Paul assumes, is competent to counsel. Has, by the Spirit, been made adequate, is gifted and fruited, if I can use that word, to move into the life of others in a, in a, in a way that will achieve positive results. That's the call that this text brings upon us as the church. So then the fruit of the Spirit that begins to emerge and the gifts of the Spirit are not achievement badges. They're not accomplishments. They're growth, they're maturity, they're equipping to do ministry for others in the context of the church life. They're God-given attributes and capacities that qualify and make competent and then as a result, call to action. So when I begin to sense someone struggling, I shouldn't fear it and back away. I should say, God, you've allowed me to see this. This has come to my attention. Now I need to begin to move in this person's direction. That's what we as a church should do. And by the way, that's how a church becomes healthy. All right? Health is not determined by the number of people that attend in a sanctuary on Sunday morning. It's not church health. You can have a lot of people who are sick. The health of a church is determined by how many people are becoming, by the Spirit, His help, progressing, becoming more spiritual so that they can minister to and serve one another. So the person caught in a sin, that's the need. The one responsible to act is every Spirit-led believer, which presumably is every Christian. And what should I do and why? So we said the first answer is not call the pastor. Okay, here's what Paul says. You that are spiritual should restore him gently. Okay, and I want to give you two pictures that this word is used to represent in the New Testament. Okay, to restore gently in the New Testament means to reset a bone. Okay, a bone is broken, it's out of place, and a doctor moves in to reset, to realign. The second picture that is used in the Gospels, when the disciples are mending their nets, same word. And the word has this connotation, to, to mend, to bring back together so as to restore usefulness. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You see, the problem when a brother or sister in Christ is struggling is that it handicaps the body of Christ and what God is seeking to do through his body as the church, as we sung, arises. You see, my concern should be that God's name will be damaged or, or injured. His reputation will be lowered by the behavior of myself or my brother or sister in Christ. Therefore, for the glory of God, we move into their life not to rebuke and condemn, not to call in the leaders, but to see restoration and healing and forgiveness and, and all that God intends in the life of every Christian. And it's interesting that he talks about restoring them gently. The J.B. Phillips translation says, quietly set back on the right path so that this person is moving again in the right direction. I like that. 
quietly move into their sphere of influence and begin to speak truth and trust that God by the Spirit will bring about results that honor and glorify Him. Now, if you think through the broader context of Galatians, you have two kinds of people, right? You have legalists who think that they're righteous because of their behavior. What is a, what is, if, I'm, if I am being infected by self-righteousness and someone's struggling, what does my attitude towards them tend to be? It tends to be condescending and condemning. I become a critic of people around me. Because I want you to think in your own life and your own experience. When you sense that someone is struggling, does it break your heart? Does it call you to action, to first fruit of the Spirit, to love them like Christ loves you? See, I think often our initial response can tend to be critical and condemning. A lot of times it's not spoken, right? Let's be honest. We're not that bold. (laughs) But it tends to be the way that we move because sometimes we are living self-righteously and we do think that we're above certain things. That mindset of pride can, can come after us. This text is going to address that head on. Restore gently. Don't critique and condemn. And, and a traditionalist in church life would call the pastor and say, hey, that person has a need. You should do something about it, right? That's their traditional perspective. The question is, what's the biblical perspective? Legal? That's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that, right? Traditional. Get someone to help them. Biblical? Go to them alone. It's exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, isn't it? He says, if someone has an offense against you, go to him alone and restore your relationship. See, that's the passion that keeps churches strong and unified and moving in a good direction that glorifies God. God wants us to restore gently. Ministry is not complicated. You know, we, 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 we tend to live in an era, in an age... Uh, unfortunately, probably for the last century where we have highly educated ministers and people feel inadequate. Can I be honest with you? Most of us as pastors are overeducated. It's like a 96-hour master's degree after college. I'm thankful for the training I got, and I hope it helps. I hope you can tell. (laughs) Uh, You didn't guess that probably, right? But here's, here's what I feel. In my heart, honestly, I think most people are self-degrading because what they do is they don't compare themselves to what God can cause them to be. They compare themselves to what others are, what they perceive that they are. And they'll see their struggles. You see me up here on Sunday morning. You don't know if I struggled this week. I did. But if you're not living in close enough proximity to me, you would never know that. And I think we need to get past this idea that ministry is professional. Ministry is derived from the people. My pastor had a definition for ministry, and I love it. I've shared it here, and I'll share it again. Ministry is sensing and meeting needs. That's all it is. As the Spirit of God directs, I meet the need. So I sense it. What should I do? Find someone to help. No. No. Say, God, is there any chance... That you could use me to rescue, to save, to restore, and watch what God does as you begin to surrender to him. See, every one of us 
should be making a difference. That gives me hope as a pastor that as, as a church family, if, if we and as we begin to grow and we begin to take responsibility for each other, it doesn't become overwhelming. We don't have to worry that James's plate is so full with counseling. It shouldn't be. We should be counseling one another because by the Spirit we are competent and called to do that according to this text. To me, that's absolutely amazing and beautiful and gives me great hope. Now, there's one caution that emerges in this text, verses 3 to 4. If you're going to move into other people's life to help with struggles and burdens, what's the caution? Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If you take pride in your progress and forget that your progress and salvation are from God, you're not helpful to others because pride will ruin your ministry. And humility will build your ministry. If you remember, like Paul says repeatedly, I am what I am by the grace of God. Any progress in my life, any saving grace in my life is owing to the fact that God has invaded this sinful heart and is bringing about transformation and making me useful. That will humble you and make you a palatable, tolerable as a counselor in someone's life. So let the Spirit of God produce in you as you yield and surrender and walk by. Let Him produce in you fruit that makes your, the tree of your life attractive and beneficial. That's the idea of fruit, isn't it? Fruit does not grow on trees to ornament or, or to, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, God, decorate. Yeah, that's not the word. It's close. Right, fruit doesn't hang on trees so you can walk by and say, that's beautiful. God didn't grow it so it would be beautiful. He grew it so you would eat it. Now, this is talking about fruit, which I struggle with, okay, if you know me. So I'm being hypocritical here. But I do look at fruit and say, that is beautiful, and I wish I liked it. That's how I feel. I don't eat much fruit at all because I have texture issues. Okay? But God grows fruit on trees for the benefit of those that receive it. He grows fruit in your life. For the benefit of those that live in your environment so people can be nourished by what God is doing in you. Don't pursue it for yourself. That's what a legalist does. They're all concerned about appearance. A believer with fruit is concerned about impact. Am I making a difference? I want my life to count for God. I want what he's doing in me to benefit others, not to make me look better. Now, do I like when people think I look better? In my sinful flesh, the answer is yes. In my pride, yes. Do I like to be affirmed? Yes. That's why I get awkward if you say something to me. Okay? Which doesn't happen often, but don't worry about it. All right? I, there's, it's about God. And if you said to me, what is your biggest struggle? I'll tell you, my biggest struggle is pride. That's my biggest struggle. Paul says, let the fruit of the Spirit grow so it can be used to nourish. And when you know the fruit that is coming from your life, that is benefiting others, and say, that was a good conversation, you're humbled by that. Because you know that conversation, that intervention, that effort to reach out and help someone was owing to the prompting of the Spirit who made you aware of it and made you effective in dealing with it so that you could be competent and not foolish in the encounter. And you're humbled. You say, God, thank you. You ask James, how many times are you in the middle of counseling situations wondering, how is this going to end? 
And God begins to move as truth is expressed through a humble vessel and good comes. Folks, God wants that to happen in every one of our lives. He gives the Spirit to that end for that aim. And so in verse 26 of the previous chapter, he says, no boasting, no swagger, none, none, no taunting. You know, I, watch, I love watching college football on Saturdays. None of that stuff that happens after a play. I love the guy that just walks back to the huddle. No pomp, no circumstance, no fist pump, nothing. He just walks back to do his job because he's part of a team. Paul says God has, has made us competent to be part of a team to make a difference in the lives of others. So the first example is someone's caught in a sin. What do you do? Get involved. Let God work. Second illustration that Paul brings is in verse 2. He says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Get down to verse 5 then. He says, for each one should carry his own load. It's a very interesting play on words here. The idea of carrying one's own load is carry your backpack. So as students in high school, you take your backpack, you put it on. You don't go to other people and say, hey, dude, do you mind carrying my backpack? It's like that's your backpack. You carry it, right? It's the way it works. Last week, I had a need. I had a refrigerator in a house I'm working on in Millington, New Jersey. I couldn't move it. So I found the strongest guy that I know who might be available, and I said to Jake, I said, hey, Jake, are you free today? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, I got something I can't do on my own. I didn't say, I got a floor that needs to be swept. <laughs> right? That's my own load. That's a responsibility I'm capable of bearing on my own. I asked Jake to come down and help me with it because I knew that he's reasonably strong physically and that he was willing. That's it. I had a circumstance I couldn't handle on my own. I needed someone else to come alongside. And when they did, the outcome was the refrigerator's in its right place and it's operating fine. It's not damaged. I thought of what would happen if I tried to do that alone. Physical injury, right? Broken refrigerator, just all kinds of problems. But when someone came alongside to help me do something that I couldn't do on my own, success came. Same thing is true in the spiritual life. It's not about our daily responsibilities. It's not about other people raising your kids, but it could be about them helping you raise your kids and counseling and guiding. It should be that. Bear one another's burdens. There are times in life that the circumstances are overwhelming. They are oppressing. They are afflicting. They are demanding patches of life where you need other people beside you. I was talking to Dan Slyker earlier this week about life with cancer. Here's what I thought to myself. I thought, you know, I go to the dentist uh, three times a year. I go for various needs, okay? I don't call people and say, I got to go to the dentist. But I can tell you this. If I get cancer, you'll know about it. Because that moves into the realm of something that is a burden, it's oppressing, it's long-term. And as I was talking to Dan this week, uh, what he expresses on a continual basis is an insatiable gratitude for the people that have moved in his direction from this church family and from the broader body of Christ. 
He says, I can't talk about it without crying. Folks, that's the church at work. My, my mom with cancer in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, attending a church of about 5,000 people, received more support from this church in that season than from that church because people here care. And it's interesting. When someone says to me, how you doing? How's your brother? How's your mom? Honestly, knowing that people care has an amazing impact on us, doesn't it? It's a way that we, we care for and share in these burdens of life. Yes, going to the dentist, I can deal with that. But there are circumstances that challenge to break apart things that are part of my life forever, as long as I can remember. And when they begin to break, guess what? I may need a little encouragement and a little help. I may need someone to come along and shoulder that burden with me. Not carry my backpack. Take care of your stuff. But when the burdens get heavy and large, make sure you're listening and moving into the life of others for the glory of God. Because I believe it is, that is how we work out. Walking by and being led by and listening to the Spirit. He's not speaking for your benefit. He's speaking to use you. To change you. So that you can be his light in a world that so desperately needs to see it. What are the assumptions of the text? And these are my conclusions. So there's the story of the text. Okay? If someone's struggling, go to them alone and help them through their struggle. Help them get get out of that bondage that is wreaking havoc in their life that is becoming a pattern. Help them. Don't stand back. Don't call someone else. Go to them alone and help them. There's an assumption in this text also about burden bearing and burden sharing. Okay, here's the assumptions in the text. Number one, the Spirit of God makes us family. Okay, I want you to listen. The Spirit of God makes us family, and family means responsibility. I cannot attend a church and stay uninvolved in the life of others and say I am honoring God's design for the church. His design is you are family. You are brothers. You are sisters. And that means responsibility, inescapably. I want to say to parents, I believe few of us go overboard in this area. I think historically in the church it happened. Churches were sometimes too busy and we were overcommitted. I have to be honest with you and say I don't see that as a problem today. I think we need to remember that I am responsible for my earthly family, but it is not my only God-given responsibility. You see, I live in a culture that respects good parenting and good outcomes, and I crave having that so I can have people's approval. Here's what God says. You have a broader scope of responsibility as a Christian. Because you are family in Christ. And with family comes responsibility. And I want to encourage you as a church 
to start to more and more take responsibility for each other's lives. Know what's going on. Show your kids the value of power of life together. Let them see, Dad, your life sustained by a brother in Christ. Mom, let them see someone that you call that you, not that you dump on, but that you share life with. And they see you sustained and encouraged by that. And they long for that so when they go to college, they don't think that life is about having fun. It's about serving others. And then you'll have a lot of fun. Secondly, we all go through seasons of struggle and need assistance. We are needy and needed. Okay, what I mean by that is I need your help. And for every one of you sitting here, there's somebody here that needs help from you. You see, if I don't understand that, I deny, I deny in a dramatic way how God has built the church. Maybe we begin to realize that I am needy, meaning I need input from you, and you need input from me. Not because I'm your pastor, because I'm your brother. I'm your, you're my sister, okay? I'll say that more next week, I guess, because the ladies aren't as much here today. So we all go through seasons of struggle and need assistance. So isolation is dangerous and to be feared. Third, this text assumes that we are close enough relationally that struggle can be detected and care can be given. That's what this text assumes. That we are relationally in proximity. That struggle can be detected and care can be given and received. Does that make sense? Okay, it's an assumption. Paul's, it's an assumption Paul's operating with that these people understand what it means to be brothers. I'm going to argue that we lose that today in the church. We need to remember that relationships drive ministry, not structure. Structure can give context for life together. But the relationships that emerge in the midst of structure are what drive ministry. Structure accomplishes nothing. Relationships drive everything in Christ. Okay, so let that morsel settle in. Family in Christ requires that I reimagine my relationships in a culture of individualism where we can come to church as consumers. And I think that's the problem. We, we see church as a place where we go and get something. This used to be a place where you come and get something. It was ShopRite. Now it's hopefully a place where you come and get something and give something, which is a flip to the habitat side, right, where people give. It needs to change. The dynamic needs to change. And you realize that we are family. And that we're in close enough proximity that when needs emerge, someone knows. Here's what I thought about this morning. I thought David had his Nathaniel. Esther had Mordecai. Daniel had three friends. Moses had Aaron. Peter had Jesus. Yodi and Siktiki in Philippians 2 had Paul. Peter had Paul. Who has your back spiritually? who knows you well enough, is in context and in community with you in a way that is close enough that if there is struggle, they know. The last thing I want to say, I think it is an assumption, is that we are humble enough. Don't be conceited is what verse 26 says. Don't think that you got there on your own. 
It's God. We are humble enough to be corrected and correcting. Meaning, when someone points to something in my life, an area in which I need help, I am humble enough to say, you're right. Sometimes we carry an air about us that says, don't you dare suggest that there's a problem in my life. We are so incredibly defensive and afraid of failure and failure being pointed out that we hide under the burden of it. And that is just stupid because there's all kinds of help around in the body of Christ. May God help us. My dentist's name is Dr. Bob. And uh, when he helps me, it hurts. When he goes for the Novocaine, which I've become a very close friend of, he says, this will just pinch for a second. And I I should just close my eyes, right? But then I see this three-inch needle go over my eyeball, (laughs) passing into the zone. This will just pinch for a little bit. I am thankful that it does pinch for just a little bit. But he gives me pain so that he can heal me and help me. We're afraid to give pain to people sometimes. And therefore, we never help them. I had the blessing a few months ago of having a friend call me and uh, help me see some things in my own life that I needed help with. Sometimes we are blind to our own needs, aren't we? Blind to how we're coming across to people. We're hurting people. And someone took the time to call me and say, I love you, and I'm going to say this to you. Now, our initial response is, I can't wait. But it's something that we need to hear. It's something someone needs to say. Or we go on blindly, needing help but never receiving it. The book of Proverbs It says this, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I want you to think about that. Faithful is the wounding of a friend, but the flattery of an enemy causes you to think you are something that you are not. So may God help us to live in truth. May God help us to see that we each have seasons when we are ensnared and need help out. And there are times for all of us when we are overburdened and need a burden bearer to come alongside. To help us to be what we cannot be apart from the Spirit's gifting in their life. Here's what I pray. I pray that we would become hungry for those kinds of relationships in our life. That feed us, that iron, uh, Proverbs 29, iron sharpening iron, making us better. Because I'm in that relationship. Because then I realize I need that relationship in my life. So I can be what God wants me to be, so I can be more effective to serve and minister to others. My concluding thought is we don't fear isolation enough. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, if two are walking together and one falls, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls alone and has no one to help him up.
pity him. Pity him. Pity her. May God help us to fear isolation. May he drive us into relationships so that when the inevitable burdens of life come, we are a church sustained by life together. Where the fruit of the Spirit is producing love and humility and all kinds of characteristics that make us palatable and able to live together. Not perfect, because we're going to have times when we need, we get caught and we need help. But in that whole picture, there's this bearing of one another's burdens. And here's what Paul says, bear one another's burdens, and then you fulfill the law of Christ. You begin to look like Jesus. Here's what Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Live selflessly, not individualistic. Not leaning towards sinful, selfish interests. But live for others. Let that begin to change and transform. And not just for your family, but for your family. Which is not just the people related to you by blood. Except by the blood of Christ. Who is the greatest burden bearer? Isaiah 53. You want to be like Jesus. Here's what you have to do. It says, he took on himself the weight of our sin. It was born upon him for your benefit. Here's what Jesus said. He said, what you saw me do, go and do it. You know what Jesus did? He called together a group of 12 disciples. In the context of close relationships and community, he poured himself into them. Correcting and directing and teaching and and rebuking and, and bringing them along. And when he left, here's what he said to him. What you saw me do, go and do it. John 20, 21. What you saw me do, go and do it. And folks, if we as a church family capture that kind of a heart, we'll change this community. This church will change first. And then our community will see what Jesus calls the shining city on a hill that attracts people because the people that go there are different. They're committed deeply to each other. You sense something when you're there of the love of Christ and passion for others and helping out. You you sense that, and it's, it's just a little bit more of what Jesus did in a lesser way, but in a glorious way. The light that the world around us needs to see. And all this, by walking in, by being directed by, by listening to the prompting of the Spirit who comes to make us ultimately little Jesus, his church, his bride, radiant and visible. So, Father, this morning as we close, uh, thank you that there is an altar that we can come to. Thank you that the greatest burden of my life has been borne by another who calls me to go and do that in little ways for those around me. Father, help us as a church to grasp the nature of who we are through these two examples, correcting and burden sharing. Help us, Lord, to be responsive as your spirit speaks so that lives around us will be positively affected and impacted for your glory. So over this church, God, I pray just an understanding of this powerful theme so that we will be healthy as a church and make a difference for the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.